What is up? You have found I Like the Blazers. I am your host, Brandon Goldner. In the background, you have my extremely sick girlfriend, Cassie. I also am basically playing my Michael Jordan flu game as I was incapacitated yesterday, unable to stand up. I was folding laundry and basically had to kneel on the ground and prop my upper body on my bed and sort of fell asleep that way. It was it was not good. We've both been dealing with something, but uh, also dealing with something are the Portland Trailblazers find themselves at one and one after a couple games recording on Sunday, October 27, and they're playing in Dallas. <laughs> okay. They're playing in Dallas. And uh, to talk a little bit about the Blazers' early season, I am super honored to have Ben Golliver of the Washington Post as our guest today. And we're going to get to that interview in just a second. But I wanted to share a couple of thoughts before we got there. And that was a, a lot of what we talked about, not a lot, but a decent amount of it was about continuity and how much continuity matters or doesn't matter in the NBA. Uh, I mentioned with Ben that the Blazers have lost 70% of their starters minutes and not only that they've lost key rotation players uh like mo harkless like evan turner for as much as you might want to say about him he was an important part of this blazers team last year um and they just don't have the continuity that they that they did and i i asked ben about how long might it take to kind of bring that back together and his his answer was it's maybe maybe not so much about continuity it's about talent and that they don't have the same level of talent from what he can see as they did last year. I'm curious what other people might think about that, but when you're looking at this Western Conference, things very early are not shaking out, maybe exactly as people might think, but small sample size. You have the Phoenix Suns at 2-1. and one. You have the Timberwolves at 2-0. and oh. You have the Houston Rockets at 1-1 one and one and not looking particularly good. You have the Lakers at 1-1 one and one and also not looking particularly good, only scoring 98 points a game in those two games. Uh, the Warriors looked completely overwhelmed in, in their loss to the Clippers, um, losing by 19. And in the middle of the pack here, you had the Blazers at one and one again, super small sample size. Uh, so with that, I mean, as a fan, as somebody who enjoys watching the team, it's going to be interesting to see how they move forward from here, what trends internally they've spotted and want to clean up. Uh, their opponent three-point shooting is very poor. Again, as we talked about with Ben, they're giving up a second worst in the league 47.8% from three to other teams. That is not very good while only shooting 31% themselves. And when you just tick through it, I wanted to do this really quick. Again, it's two games. It's not very much time. Not enough time has passed to really make sweeping judgments. But through these two games, you have Damian Lillard averaging 33 and a half points. Hassan Whiteside shooting a ridiculous 88%. Uh, <laughs> that's obviously not going to last, but scoring 19, getting 14 boards uh, and CJ averaging just 15 a game on 36% shooting. That's going to, it's going to have to come up quite a bit for the Blazers to be competitive. Um, you've gotten some contributions uh, from Bazemore, particularly defensively getting steals. Uh, Anthony Simons looked better in his second game. Than they did in the first Rodney hood seems to be, about as good as he's ever been. Uh, Mario Hazonia, after a really good preseason, is only averaging three points a game in his 18 minutes and not looking particularly great. Zach Collins, while he may not 
pop on the stat screen, uh, looking better when you watch him play. And he's getting 31 minutes in these two games. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting to me to see how the rotations tighten up or don't, who gets pulled in and who doesn't. Uh, because right now, the Blazers essentially have an eight-person rotation, eight people averaging 15 or more minutes a game. Uh, and then you have Anthony Tolliver with 12 minutes a game and Scal with eight and a half. So uh, it's pretty early. There's not so much analysis we can do right now just because it is so early. Um, but it's also interesting to see how the rest of the NBA is shaking out, how poor the Indiana Pacers have looked in their two losses, how um, relatively good the Hawks have looked in their two wins with a 10 and a half point point differential. And again, going back to the Phoenix Suns, having a Western Conference and NBA best 12 points per game point differential. And that's two of those games without DeAndre Ayton, who was suspended for 25 games for violating the league's anti-substance uh, uh, substance policy, anti-substance policy. There's, I don't know what it is. He had a diuretic in his system. A diuretic is something that kind of flushes your system out. So it may be an indication that he was trying to flush out something else that he didn't want to be detected. Um, so he's going to be out for 25 games. So I am curious how this all plays out in the weeks and the months ahead, obviously, as you all are. Um, and honestly, don't have a whole lot more to say uh, about it than just that. I have not gone to a game yet this season. It's still early. I'm excited to go and also excited to see, again, how the Blazers rotation tightens up, how the players maybe play better or don't play better off of each other and just kind of how the continuity of the team comes together. Again, losing so many starters minutes has been disappointing. Uh, I'm trying to remember if there's anything else that I wanted to get to. I did put a call out for questions. I don't think that I got any, so I can't ask any. Um, I didn't get any, but uh, at any rate, <laughs> with that, would love for you to follow us at I Like the Blazers on Twitter. We're also at ILikeTheBlazers.com. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, CastBox, pretty much any podcatcher that you're using. You can find us there. With that, without much further ado, without any other further ado, we're going to introduce our guest, Ben Golliver of The Washington Post. Ben Golliver, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. It's always my pleasure for another BG. How's it going, man? <laughs> Good. Us BGs have to stick together. Um, and speaking of things that are similar between you and I, uh, we both spent some time at Blazer's Edge. You've been covering the NBA, I think, for 12 years or maybe even a little bit longer than that. Um, I, I know that when you started with Blazer's Edge, you were a credentialed reporter who was at the games. Um, and I'm wondering, first off, how was it working for Blazers Edge and working for Dave Deckard? Had to get that question in there. And then also, when you started, you weren't part of like traditional media, right? You weren't like the Oregonian or USA Today or the stuff that you're doing now with the Washington Post. You hadn't gotten to that level yet. Did you feel like you were treated any differently that people thought, oh, there's some blog boy there, like taking away our reps? Or did you feel like you were treated pretty much as a colleague and a professional during that time? No, it was an exciting time for NBA coverage. I mean, the internet was really starting to kind of solidify. I think my first season was the 2007-2008 season. And I think it became clear at that point that the traditional media outlets weren't necessarily satisfying the, the diehard fans online. There was just a really big opportunity 
just kind of a hole, uh, you know, for fans who want to just be discussing the team 24-7, 365. And um, so, you know, from that standpoint, we were very lucky that the, the Blazers agreed to credential us. It wasn't really a common thing back at that point. Um, you know, it wasn't like we had some big master plan pitch of, you know, how we, you know, we're, what we're going to do to change the game from a media standpoint. Uh, they basically were just friendly enough to take a chance. And, and so I was always very grateful uh, that they did that. Uh, I loved writing for Blazers Edge. It's certainly, you know, people always talk about like, you need your 10,000 hours, you need to get your repetitions. Uh, for me, that's what Blazers Edge was. I mean, cranking out, you know, 3,000, 4,000 word game recaps after every home game just helped me make up for a lot of years where I wasn't going through a, a classic journalism program in college. I didn't write for the student paper. So I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, and Blazers Edge really helped me do that. Um, now, in terms of the perception, yeah, I think there was a, there was a little pushback. I mean, anytime there's change, I think that the people do get uncomfortable uh, for us, we always try to highlight the work that everybody else was doing, picking out the best of the best and trying to maintain relationships within, uh, you know, the local media there in Portland. Uh, you know, I consider a lot of those guys still friends to this day, even though I don't get to see them nearly as much anymore. Uh, and I think, you know, the the fan base that we built up at Blazers Edge really helped in some cases amplify the work that other people were doing and, and wound up, you know, getting us on good terms with other media members because they're saying, hey, if these guys link to us, I get a lot of traffic. So this is great. Um, so, you know, I do think there was some pushback, you know, a lot of times with my writing style, maybe it was a little bit punchier, a little bit more in your face, a little bit more cutting. Uh, because we were kind of the outsiders, you know, I didn't re really necessarily feel the need to protect sources or to, uh, you know, sugarcoat things. Uh, and that's not necessarily my style just in general. So I think that does ruffle some feathers, you know, both, you know, with the team sometimes uh, and then also with, you know, fellow media members. But, you know, I always just try to keep it real, uh, you know, put the truth out there. You know, sometimes if, you know, you're wrong, you know, kind of cop to it uh, and move forward. But, I do think that we were part of a wave of coverage change across the NBA. You know, I think you look at that time period, um, a lot of the things that we were doing kind of laying the groundwork for as social media got bigger and bigger, Twitter, Instagram, uh, as, you know, analysis became a much bigger deal rather than just sort of game recaps. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the things that you know, we were trying to do at Blazers Edge in the early days, wound up just sort of becoming the norm, uh, becoming the norm, uh, excuse me. And I think a lot of, you know, even a, you know, a site like The Athletic, you know, a lot of their coverage of the local teams, to me, it, uh, there's a lot of similarities in the people who do it the best for the athletic uh, with, you know, what we were trying to do, you know, 10 years ago. So from that standpoint, I'm very proud of the work that I did there. And, you know, I love Dave. I really thank him for the opportunity. He changed my life, giving me that platform. And, uh, you know, that's why every year I still go back and donate the tickets to Blazers Edge night because, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, there's young kids in Portland getting a chance to see a game for the first time uh, and, uh, you know, getting to experience the sport that we all love. For sure. That's a great plug too. If, if you're listening and you don't know what Blazers night Blazers edge night is, they donate was like 2000 tickets per year. So that underprivileged youth can see a Blazers game, uh, a really, really good use of your money. Um, and to your point a second ago about when you first started, I mean, since you've been at Blazers edge, you worked for CBS, you've been at sports illustrated and now you're with the Washington post. Do you feel that it, as you've become more of a professional, this is your livelihood 
Do you feel a pressure to protect sources now more than you used to? Do you feel like you can't be as punchy or is that something that maybe through your career that people know what your style is, people know who you are, that you're still able to to operate in that way. And I also wondered if there's a difference maybe between what you're willing to share in your written work and what you may be willing to share on, on your podcast, the open floor podcast. Is there a difference between those two media also? No, these are great questions, man. It's funny. Like if you told me the guy who started the draft Kevin Durant blog with a little Photoshop of Kevin Durant looking like a baby giraffe was going to be writing for the Washington (laughs) Post, you know, sort of like this, you know, kind of uh, industry standard type publication where, you know, it's uh, kind of synonymous with, you know, gravitas and all these other things. You know, I would have told you you were you were lying, you know, 12 years ago. Uh, It's been a really interesting journey. I think that um, I've definitely grown up a lot as a writer. But one thing that I pride myself on his versatility, you know, being able to write different types of things, whether it's long form, short form, uh, analysis, you know, breaking news, uh, a profile, uh, you know, that's just something that I've always, you know, felt like was one of my strengths that maybe isn't necessarily every sports writer's strengths. And so, uh, you know, getting to the Washington Post, <clears throat> You know, the first thing you do, like any new job, is say, okay, well, what are you guys looking for? What is it that you guys do well? What is it that you want from me? How can I, you know, fill in uh, these gaps? Um, you know, and, and what can I bring to the table? And, and every time I've gotten a different job, you you mentioned, you know, a bunch of them. It's always been different marching orders. You know, it's usually the publications know their readerships better than you do as an outsider. Um, so you want to listen to that. You want to cater to what your readers uh, want to hear. Uh, and then I think in some cases, uh, for me. You know, that's definitely changed the type of writing that I do. I think, you know, especially when I was younger, uh, it was a lot more quick hitting news analysis, you know, being like the first one up with like trade grades or first one up with, uh, you know, an injury analysis if somebody goes down. I think now um, it's more column oriented. Uh, It's more uh, profile or feature oriented. Um, And so, you know, a lot of what I do on a regular basis now is like a weekly newsletter, which is basically just like, you know, my column, like my weekly column. Uh, And then if I I go to a big game, you know, I'm trying to write it and put it into a wider context for maybe a more casual audience or a national audience, as opposed to a real diehard fan audience like, you know, exists at Blazers Edge. And so you do have to just take a different approach. I mean, sometimes, you know, people would accuse you of... uh, of going for the low hanging fruit, but look, low hanging fruit is low hanging for a reason. You know, a lot of people can pick it and they want to pick it and they want to, you know, weigh in on those kinds of conversations. Now from the story, uh, the sourcing standpoint, um, I think that uh, there, there's always trade-offs. You know, I think that, you know, from an ethical standpoint, there's certain things that I think some reporters will do to get scoops that, I'm just not willing to do. Um, and so that the, the trade-off there is, you know, you don't get to be the guy who breaks the news and, and that's okay with me. I think in general, uh, what I'm trying to do is stay as informed as possible so that my opinions, my columns, uh, read with sort of, or, or even my podcast, you know, they're, you, they read or they listen, uh, as if they're very informed and sometimes, you know, directly informed, uh, you know, regarding, uh, the people who are involved personally, um, but, you know, not necessarily, you know, putting anyone out or, or hanging anyone out to dry. So it's a, it's a difficult balance, but I prefer to use information generally just on background, uh, you know, not necessarily try to cite every single last thing to a source, um, uh, 
you know, I understand that's kind of popular these days and it, it makes you look like more of an insider. I mean, to me, it's better to just kind of have the knowledge, weave it in with, with your own, uh, you know, uh, your own take on things um, rather than just, you know, turning your entire column into this source said and this source said and this source said. But um, look, this is a high stakes professional sports. There's a lot of egos. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of reputations involved. And if you do take shots, you better pre- be prepared to hear from people. Uh, and I certainly do, uh, all the time, you know, for people who are upset about something I wrote, um, or, you know, just d- disagree about, you know, one, uh, one take or another, but I think that's just all part of the game. Well, I'd imagine it's like any other professional relationship, right? Where if you're going to be hanging people out to dry and people can't trust you, that's going to inhibit your ability to do your job later, even if it gets you a more interesting or juicier story in that moment. And I would imagine that that calculus is something that you have to balance quite a bit. I mean, is that fair? It is. And also just, there's a lot of competition, you know, there's another big major change here over the last 10 years in NBA media is just the proliferation of writers and, and uh, you know, just media members attending games. <clears throat> you know, I, I know when I started in Portland, you know, there wasn't very many people in the locker room. I mean, I want to say, or maybe seven writers or something like that. And, you know, now I go to one of these Lakers uh, scrums after a, a game and there might be 75 people jockeying to try to get quotes from LeBron. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think your margin for error is, is pretty slim. You need to be, uh, you know, pretty careful, I, I think, in terms of how you present things. But also, I think that there's real benefits to not just being a stenographer, right? Not just being the person who's going to, you know, be on the team of, you know, the superstar, whoever the the, the most famous player is, and just kind of write whatever he says. I think that the audience appreciates truth. The audience uh, appreciates accountability. And there's been some pretty big stories here recently, especially the China story, where things got really personal involving some really big name personalities from Adam Silver to Daryl Morey uh, to LeBron James. And if you're silent on those subjects, I think you're doing a disservice to yourself and doing a disservice to your readers. That's actually a perfect segue because I wanted to ask you now pivoting to the NBA. Are you excited for this NBA season? I mean, is it different because the landscape of the NBA has changed with the Warriors not being what they were last year, the Raptors not being what they were? It seems like you have a lot more parity at the very top of the league. Um, so is that is that exciting or refreshing in some way for you as a reporter? And yeah, and without going into like detail, because you did a lot of really good in-depth work analyzing the NBA's business interests in China. I encourage anyone to check out your work on that. Um, how weird was that? Did that throw off your kind of preseason mind setting to get into the groove of the season? Was that just odd to deal with? Well, the first, the first question is an easy answer. I'm always excited for the NBA. I mean, it could be the worst year ever and I'm still going to get juice for it. Look, I just don't have a lot else going on in my life. So that, that one's easy. Now, second, uh, in terms of true. you're traveling all over the place. Come on, check out your Instagram. (laughs) Only, only by the grace of the NBA do I get to have those opportunities. And so I, you know, I, uh, I understand that, you know, that's where my investment needs to be just mentally and, uh, you know, structuring my life around it. It's, it's what I live for. And, you know, it, it makes for busy weeks. You know, this week I'm probably going to like six games in seven days, something like that. Um, and, you know, that takes a toll, but, you know, this is what we do it for. Now, in terms of the China thing, yeah, man, it, it wiped out 
two weeks straight, basically, where it was just either reporting or doing an interview or taping some television thing or, you know, following up the latest development, trying to get quotes from people, hearing from, you know, angry people who didn't like what you wrote about it. I mean, it was a nonstop cycle. And it really got into like the big media uh, cyclone, you know, where you've got CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and basically every cable channel weighing in on it. You've got politicians from Democrats to Republicans weighing in on it. Um, it was one of the biggest clusters that I've ever been involved with. The only one that would really compare would be the Donald Sterling situation. And I think at that time, my reporting maybe wasn't quite as directly involved. I was, I, you know, just more doing kind of like secondhand reporting uh, in that situation. I was a little bit younger. Um, so this was the first one where like, you know, I'm getting notes from the desk saying, look, we've got a reporter in Hong Kong. I need you to like coordinate with her to make sure you've got the accurate data from, uh, you know, the, the protests that are going on there tonight. And it's like, all right, now you're really feeling the weight of a, a pretty important story. Uh, and so that was a lot of fun, um, or at least challenging, you know, fun in a challenging way. I mean, obviously, it's a very serious and grave topic. Um, so it did, to me, cast a kind of a pale over the season. And I thought between that and then Zion Williamson's injury, it was a real one-two blow for the NBA because, you know, like, you never lose sight of the fact that this is all a business uh, in the NBA. And that's especially true here in LA where it just, it always feels like this just gigantic circus and hype machine. Right. And this year it's even crazier because both the Clippers and the Lakers are really good and, and uh, you know, anticipated to be good. Um, but when you have your major foreign partner in China, like basically at their wits end uh, <laughs> uh, over this Hong Kong issue with the league and, you know, canceling deals and, and everything else. And you also have the most hyped prospect basically of the decade who has been lined up to be on national television game after game after game for the first, you know, two months of the season, just out of the picture. Um, that's a real one to blow for the league. And I think that the opening week to me, there was actually a lot of really good storylines. Uh, the Clippers looked amazing. The Suns are on the come up. The Kings look absolutely horrible. I mean, just a bunch of things that we didn't expect Trey young looking like an all-star. So a lot of really cool things are happening on the court. Uh, but I still think the league's got a ways to go to kind of escape the shadow of the, uh, you know, the, the China situation and the Zion situation. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the Zion stuff, it just, it just sucks to think that somebody who's so young and so talented that their energy or their physicality may be sapped. Um, hopefully he comes back just as strong as he was before. Um, and with that, you know, we're only a couple of games into the season. Some teams, I think the most games any team has played at this point is three. Um, it, let's just focus on the Western conference. Cause a lot we can get into, we only have like 10 more minutes. Uh, but I'm curious from your perspective, from what you've seen so far, which trends you've seen in the Western conference, do you think are kind of aberrations and small sample size theater? And which ones do you think might be indicative of something that could last? And, and a few that come to mind are uh, surprising to see how well the Suns are playing. Um, it's surprising. Well, maybe not surprising, but it's, it's, I guess, good to see how good Carl Anthony Towns looks. Houston doesn't look particularly cohesive. The Pelicans are without Zion and, and they're Owen three right now um, with either those things or something else that maybe comes to mind for you in the Western conference. Do you think uh, is indicative of a trend that will last or something that you think is a sort of small sample size? 
Well, I think the biggest kind of big picture trend that I see around the league is the impact of all the offseason movement. I mean, it's insane how many te- you know big stars, but also secondary players, role players changed team last summer. I mean, it was a huge percentage, right? And I think you're seeing some of these teams trying to put put it together on offense. And they're just not ready yet. Like they needed another month of training camp to figure out what they were trying to do because they just don't have uh, the chemistry, the cohesion offensively. And there's been a couple seasons recently where like the offenses just came out of the gate and we're putting up crazy numbers and playing at just insanely fast pace. And we're all sitting there like, uh, you know, in our chairs, like, wow, what is happening here? And that's not really been my takeaway here for the first you know week or two. I mean, even a team like the Clippers and the Lakers, frankly, have had some really up and down moments, uh, you know, with their offenses where one night they look amazing. They're putting up 140. The next night they don't, they don't look nearly as good and, and uh, they're getting beat. So I think that's going to be something to watch as the season unfolds is okay. Which of these teams can pull it together uh, from a continuity standpoint and, and really, you know, settle in consistently uh, and be who we thought they would be now in terms of the Suns. um, I'm sure you're a big Monty Williams guy like I am dating back to his time in in Portland, but I was a believer in that hire. And what I would just encourage people, if the Suns have a good season and it's like 35, you know, 40 wins, you know, like they really play as well as they look kind of like right now. And they're able to sustain that, have that be a reflection on how poorly Robert Sarver handled his franchise for the last five or six years. Because remember, the major moves <clears throat> from this past summer that could really boost them are hire- hiring a competent coach who's done it before, Monty Williams, and hiring a competent point guard who's done it before in Ricky Rubio. Those were the big moves, okay? Like, And those are not even like splashy moves. Those are just kind of league average, just like replacement level moves. Uh, in two very important positions. The fact that they went so many seasons without a competent head coach or a competent point guard should drive everyone bananas. And it honestly should have, you know, in my opinion, led to some real pressure on Sarver to be forced to sell the team because he was not doing the bare minimum that ownership should be doing, um, you know, at, at, you know, for multiple seasons in a row. Well, and why, yeah. do you, why do you think that is? Because those two moves don't seem to be particularly difficult to figure out, right? Even someone like me, who's not a professional reporter, says, yeah, you need a good coach. You need a decent point guard. Like, is it just that the owner wants his fingerprints on stuff that he's over managing the team from up high? Like, I just, I don't know. I just don't get it. You know, I think you could go crazy trying to get inside Robert Sarver's mind. <laughs> uh, I have no idea what he was thinking. I think some of it was financially motivated, just thinking, hey, look, we've got such a young team. Let's just, you know, kind of go cheap for a couple of years, you know, punt it forward. And then, you know, once Booker's really ready to take off, then we'll, we'll get serious. But, um, yeah, there's no doubt they were underperforming what they could have been doing. Um, and I also just think they made a lot of, you know, bad personnel decisions along the way, which, you know, made things more difficult to attract talent. Um, but but, you know, give credit to Rubio. He got a really nice contract this summer and he was willing to kind of swallow that bitter pill and say, all right, I'm going to go take a shot on Phoenix and, and see what they look like. But, um, you know, one thing, just a lesson from that team, too, is I kind of like them better when Aiton's not on the court. I know that might be blasphemy because uh, he's the number one pick, but, you know, you take him out and you put in 
Kaminsky or you put in Baines, and now all of a sudden you can play five out, and guess what? Your offense is going to be a lot better if you've got five shooters on the court or at least five perimeter guys on the court so you have more room to drive to the basket. I mean, this is not rocket science. This is stuff people figured out, you know, three or four years ago. And Aiton being kind of a non-shooter, um, you know, that, that kind of clogs thing a little bit. Now, obviously, offensively, he's going to give you you know, the finishing, the dunks, pick and roll stuff, 15 foot jumper. I mean, he's, he's got some stuff to his game, uh, but I just like aesthetically what they look like when they're having guys like Baines and Kaminsky, you just spread out and, and popping three pointers. I mean, they look pretty good against uh, the Clippers. Um, you know, in terms of other takeaways, I mean, I think the Warriors are one of the biggest stories. Uh, we heard so much from Warriors diehards last year about how, they didn't necessarily need Kevin Durant or how bad they looked when uh, Steph Curry was out and Kevin Durant had to run the show and things of that nature. And to me, I think the early favorite for 2020 MVP is either Kevin Durant or Dave Yeager, you know, because like, look at the situations that have been left in their wake when those guys are not there anymore. I mean, Sacramento is pitiful or hopeless. They don't look like they're buying into Luke Walton whatsoever. And the Warriors were a complete mess on opening night, and they definitely need Kevin Durant after all this, uh, you know, trying to diminish his role within everything and Draymond, you know, wanting to get in his face last season and all that stuff. So, um, you know, those are some of the bigger picture things I see. Yeah, and so much of this comes down to continuity or lack of it. And with that, going to get to these two Blazers questions and get you out. The the Blazers have... uh, seen a lot of roster turnover. They have 70% of their starters minutes are either no longer on the team or are injured in Nurkic. Uh, They lost a lot of key role players. How much do you think for this Blazers team, given what their expectations are, given what we've heard the team say about how good they think they are, how much does continuity matter and how long do you think it's going to take for them to kind of come together? And do you think that, you know, Coach Stotts and Damian Lillard and this famed Blazers culture that's been cultivated there, do you think that that can maybe help the team come together faster given how much change has taken place? Well, I don't understand why they have expectations. That part kind of throws me for a loop. Oh, they now, made I the Western the... Conference Finals, Ben. Come on. No, Western I understand Conference that. Finals team. I understand that. And (laughs) I think people like to diminish that run, at least other outsiders. And I think that's bogus, you know, give them credit. They won two really impressive series in the playoffs. They rose to the moment. They gutted it out. I mean, all those kinds of things that you want to, you know, see those those cliches. I mean, they did it. Um, I don't understand why a team can go through that much change over the summer, losing very key pieces who fit very well. And I understand they were a little bit of punching bags, you know, Aminu and Harkless, but those are important players for them. And I thought they got worse at both of those positions. And then I look at some of these bench guys, and I know it's a very typical Portland media thing to do to hype up, you know, like just basically every single guy. But come on, man, like a lot of these guys just can't play. And I, so I don't know where the expectations come from. Um, I kind of felt like Lillard and McCollum, that duo topped out last year. You know, they basically you know, did whatever they possibly could do in the playoffs from a, you know, a reasonable expectation standpoint. And, you know, repeating that is very, very difficult. Now I'm not going to write them out and say, Oh, they're not going to be a playoff team. Like some people have, but I think that the, the continuity stuff is one issue, but the talent and the fit to me is another issue too. Um, you know, I think when I'm circling guys who are really important for this season, you know, if they get great years from Baysmore and hood, 
okay, you know, maybe this is a team that deserves some expectations. If those guys are just sort of normal for how they've been or, uh, you know, slow to start or whatever else, you know, I don't know. I don't necessarily see this team's, uh, you know, ceiling. Uh, you know, I definitely believe in Stotts and I definitely believe in Lillard. You know, I think that Lillard gets out left out of this conversation where people will say, you know, Curry and LeBron James and, and James Harden, like they're able to just deliver a certain level of excellence kind of no matter who's around them. And Lillard is at the point where he deserves to be in with that group. Now, he's not as good as those guys, not quite, but he has a similar impact in terms of being able to raise the games of people around him with his shooting um, and, you know, with just his steadiness and his leadership capabilities. But, uh, you know, to me, if they're a first round and out team, that sounds about right. Yeah. And I mean, for this uh, beginning of the season, things haven't looked super awesome for them. I know they beat the Kings by 10, but the Kings were diminished. And I, my understanding is that you watched their first game against the Nuggets that they lost. Um, and so far after these two games, the Blazers are giving up uh, 47% from deep. That's 29th in the NBA. Do you think that that is just a function of losing key defensive pieces like Aminu, like Harkless, having to try to cobble together like a Bazemore and a Rodney Hood to try to replace that that defensive talent? I mean, is that going to be a problem long term for the Blazers this year? Um, I think defensive versatility in general, and that's one way that's going to shine through, but for sure, uh, because you look at like their top six or seven guys, how many versatile defenders do you have in that group? I mean, to me, it's Bazemore. And that's basically it. I mean, I wouldn't consider Zach Collins like a super versatile defender. I understand that, uh, you know, he he plays with a lot of effort and he blocks some shots. But when you're talking about covering ground on rotations, getting out to shooters, doing all that work, I mean, that's that's asking a lot from him. Whiteside to me has gotten too much hype in the first couple of games. You know, you look late, Portland loses that game because Jokic sticks two threes down the stretch in the fourth quarter, and the guy who can't come out to guard him is Hassan Whiteside, the same guy who hasn't been able to track three-point shooters his entire career, right? So I think that's going to be an issue when you're playing him. Um, And then I also just, you know, with, with Portland's guards, you know, I think that they've definitely stepped up. Uh, their effort level, uh, but they're still not long and physical. They're not really that disruptive. Um, And so that's why those three and four spots are so important. And I just don't see them having big time defensive uh, talent uh, at those spots. And, you know, continuity definitely matters, but I also just think kind of like effort level and buy-in matters too. And if there was anything I was disappointed about on opening night, that didn't feel like a Blazers opening night game, did it? I mean, I'm used to seeing... You know, these guys just like running around like absolute crazy. I mean, they never lose on opening night. The crowd's always going absolutely nuts. Like you could just take it to the bank. And so that's kind of what scared me. I was like, wait a minute, where's the pop here? You know, this is a the most reliable team on opening night, maybe in the entire league. And uh, they kind of put up a dud. So I was, you know, mildly disappointed there. Uh, but I wouldn't be overreacting on the sample size stuff that that stuff will uh, will shake out. But I definitely think it's a an area that they're going to have to kind of address because, uh, you know, their bigger lineups like, you know, with Collins and Whiteside or, or whatever, they're just not that versatile. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to see how this shakes out in the next 5, 10, 15 games. Hopefully it gets a little bit better. Um, with that, I appreciate you. Appreciate your time, Ben. If people wanted to reach out to you or connect with your work, how would they do that? Uh, just go to WashingtonPost.com Sports. I'm on there. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. And then I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. Um, that should do it. 
Cool, man. Appreciate you. Thanks. Thank you again to Ben for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have him on. I appreciate him taking the time. Uh, with that, we're going to keep it short and sweet, I think, for this show. Again, if you want to reach out to us, please do that at I Like the Blazers on Twitter, Facebook, not on Instagram. I don't know if we're going to get on Instagram or not, but Facebook or Twitter. Also, I Like the I like the blazers at gmail.com. And the biggest thing you can do to help us is to please give us a review, preferably a five star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Play, Castbox, Spotify, however you get your podcasts. That's how we would love your interaction and your reviews because when you do that, it helps more people find the show and we'd really, really appreciate it. Uh, so that's about it. Blazers taking on the Mavericks tonight, hoping for a win there. And we will be back probably in a week or so with another edition of I Like the Blazers. With that, I'm your host, Brandon Goldner. Thank you all so much and see you soon.